from our great-grandfathers and from his great-grandfathers, the truth is, is that we know the truth and the truth sets us free because God has revealed the truth to us. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And when you look at our, our, our word cloud, it reminds you of the things that are so important to us. We treasure the Bible. Uh, every time you come to this church, you'll be able to find the Bible being opened and being exposed. Uh, and that's what we call expository preaching. Uh, we also treasure the gospel. Every day or every Sunday that you come to this church, uh, we always want you to be seeing that empty cross over there. And the reason I emphasize the word empty is because the gospel is already done. We are not waiting for Jesus to come and die. He already came. In the fullness of time, he sent his son. Uh, God sent his son made under the law to redeem those who are under the curse. That's us. And so we're gospel driven because we always point to the love that put him on the cross. His love for us. And we, that's why we're caring. That's why we want to come and meet with him in worship. Uh, that's why we are reformed. And that's why we're multi-generational. All of those terminologies are, are to try to help us explain that this is normal. For the children of God, by the way, no grandchildren of God, for the children of God to gather together to meet with God, how wonderful it is. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves in doing this. So welcome to New Covenant Church as we open the word of God today. I want you to know that we're going to be preaching from the inerrant, infallible, inspired word as it was given in the originals. And I'll be looking at our text in verse 20 of chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, verse 20. This is God's word. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. That's our text today. Some folks only heard the word food. Let me reread it for you. Verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong... For anyone or for someone to make another person stumble because of what he eats. I'm going to be picking that up again, but now that you've heard the word, let me hear it one more, read it to you a little bit more. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. This is God's word. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'll take the reading of the word and, the, and then make the uh, preaching of it even an, an effectual means of salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles open, you're going to need to keep them open because I want to walk you through a few things before we come to the Lord's table in just a few moments. Uh, I wanted to highlight a couple other verses about the work of God. And so if you have your, uh, your sheet, you'll be able to see some of those texts on the back side. Uh, the emphasis on the work of God. I want to make sure that this is implanted in your mind by way of introduction. In Romans chapter 8, that means if we backed up and we're doing Romans in reverse, so when we're in chapter 14, it's because chapter 8 was there. Chapter 8, verse 28, says that we already know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Who works those together? God does. So you can see the work of God. He works things together for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, if I go to Ecclesiastes, way, way back to the Old Testament, uh, when Solomon was an older man and he wrote some things down, he says, uh, this is some of the wisdom that he passes on. I want to read to you from verse 10 and following, chapter 7 here. Say not, why were the former days better than these? 
For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to take to those who see the sun. He says, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. In other words, if you've got this wisdom, then you're going to be able to be sustained because of the wisdom. So he says, with this wisdom, verse 13, consider the work of God. The work of God. As an old man there, he is saying, hey, everybody, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Great question. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, God has it under control. Consider the work of God. I want to take you down to John chapter 6. If I could, John chapter 6, verse 26 through 32. Some of you that have been faithful to Sunday school have been in this text. It's a, it's a lengthy text, but in this text you can see in verse 29 there's that focus on the work of God. But let me give you the context. Jesus in verse 26 answers the, the, the crowd that's looking at him. And they're not so happy with him right now. They like his miracles, but they're not so sure. You, you know, they're looking at a guy saying, What? You know, they don't really want to acknowledge that somebody from Galilee, somebody from Nazareth, actually could could be special. So it comes down here. Jesus answered the people, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you want more of the free stuff. It's almost like you want another government handout, but you want it from God to give you a handout. Verse 27, Do you work for food that perishes? No, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. In other words, you're really wanting something, but only the Son of God can give it to you. Verse 28, and they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, we want to get on that boat. We want to catch that train of the works of God. We want to be a part of it. Jesus said to them, this is the work of God. And this, this is basically the answer to this question today. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. You've got a couple of pronouns. Let me help you out. Jesus is saying that the works of God are that people like you and me would believe in Jesus whom God the Father has sent. Sounds familiar to that famous verse you all know, John 3.16. For God the Father loved the people in this world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus. You see how it's right there? This is the work of God, that you would get it, that you would rest in him that is in Christ who was sent by God the Father. This, so they said to him, then, then what is the sign? They go on to these things, and, uh, and again, it goes more about food, um, and, and, and so Jesus answers in verse 31, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said unto them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses that gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. When you start to realize this, what is the work of God? What is the work of God? And that's where I want us to be able to answer it today as we come to the Lord's table. Uh, the book of Romans 
is where we see this text. Romans chapter 14, verse 20. It's the only time in the text that Paul actually calls it the work of God. Now, I want to give you the context for it, too. So if you're new today, if this is your first time here, we're doing the book of Romans in reverse. We're starting at the end and working backwards. And the reason we're doing this is because the, the epistle the, that Paul wrote is written normally in a procedure where he gives doctrine first, and then he gives sometimes his emotional uh, grasp of it, and then he gives you instruction. Now, how many of you like instruction? Maybe I ought to rephrase that. How many of you like to be instructed by your mate? How many of you like to be instructed by the police officer? How many of you like to be instructed by, uh, by just somebody on the street corner? Or maybe by the driver that, that just passed you, you know, because they're complaining about your driving. There's a lot of things going on, but in the book, in every one of Paul's epistles, the pattern is, is that he gives you the doctrinal things, the things that are from God, revelation, and then he gives you the application of it. What do you do with it? Some preachers like to say this, so what? If all this stuff is true, then, then what should be different? Now, Jesus said a little bit differently, by your fruit you shall know them. So in some ways... Uh, Fruit ought to be produced. If you all have been eating and, and nourished by, the, by having your roots grow deep in Scripture, then you ought to be able to have much fruit on those trees. Uh, to quote Psalm 1, you shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that will bring forth fruit in its season. Its leaf won't wither. This is what should be. Now, the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of people that he really didn't get to know that well. Now, I know he, knows, he knew about 26 of them, and he also was going to take uh, a group with him when he went up there. But the, there was no church established in Rome. There was no official missionary that had gotten up there. There were a lot of people that had fled the persecution. Apparently, they were living in a time that uh, was not very easy for Christians. You remember the phrase, Caesar is Lord? Well, if you, wouldn't utter, if you would utter that, then you'd be okay. But Christians had a hard time uttering that. Why? Because who is Lord? Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, then you can't say, oh, I'll just be quiet and I'll just conform and I'll just do whatever everybody else does. Many of these people had to flee from, from the Jewish communities. Many people had to flee and they had to find new refuge. And some of them were heading to the capital city, and uh, God had given some of them the calling to go there, and particularly Acts 9, he was going to send the apostle himself to go to the household of Caesar. It's pretty interesting. So since Paul hasn't gotten there, he's writing this book. It's probably about 30 years after Jesus died, buried, and was resurrected, and then he ascended to heaven. Now, 30 years later, basically uh, uh, three decades then you have the apostle end up writing this book to the people there saying, I plan to come. I want to come and pastor you guys. But because I've been hindered, let me write this book. Now, does he write a small book or a, a big book? Either way, you're not going to be wrong. You can speak up. It's okay. Um, it's a short book in the sense that you can read it in one sitting. It's only got 16 chapters. But it's a long book if you compare it to the other epistles that he wrote. 16 chapters is an awful lot. And five chapters to instruction is huge. It's almost like they needed a lot of extra explanation. Do you? The book of Romans is not typically the first book that people that are converted read. Most people like to read the book of John. The book of John tells great stories. 
And when you read the stories about John, which we've been even mentioning here in John chapter 6, you're going to see that he, ha- he gives you a wonderful view of how Jesus is more than a mere man. He is the Son of God. Now, in the book of Romans, Jesus has already ascended, and now the doctrines about what Christ has taught are being unveiled. Uh, Jesus said that when the disciples were being sent out, that they would teach and they would make known the things that had already been revealed, but the Holy Spirit would be upon them so that they would be able to even explain more. He would bring to remembrance the things that they had heard directly from Christ. And the apostle Paul was one of the apostles out of due season. He wasn't actually there walking with Jesus. He didn't get to see the bread turned to, uh, the, the uh, he didn't get to see the bread multiplied or the fish multiplied. He didn't get to see Peter walk on water. He was a Johnny come lately. He was a, a, a newbie. I think he was about 10 years younger than Jesus. And, and he had full of zeal. He was full of religious zeal. But God finally grabbed his attention, called him by name, and set an example of what salvation is for all of us. You see, you can't save yourself either. Paul was in the business of doing everything he could to save himself. And he was going to even try to squash or to cancel out everybody who was messing up the Judaism religion. Until God said, time out. Let me show you what it feels like to be persecuted. You know how you've hurt all those Christians? Well, now you're going to experience it to uh, an exponential degree. Pretty cool how it all comes. The book of Romans has 16 chapters. Uh, it is a treasure for those of you that want to grow deeper. You know, we, ha- we talk about deep and wide. This is a great place to get deeper and to understand the doctrines of grace that are presented here. The, first, or the last five chapters are all about instruction, but the first 12 chapters give you a lot of insights that you, could, you wouldn't get on your own. You couldn't even conceive of them by your own thinking. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, and that's why we need the Bible. We need the revelation from God. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting book. In chapter 1, we find Paul identifying himself, and in verse 17, he simply says, Hey, hey, people in Rome, I, I love this stuff. Now, he doesn't say that word. I mean, it might be more popular in 2021. But back in his early days in AD 63 or whatever it was, uh, he ends up saying, I am not ashamed of this stuff. You can call me anything you want, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's how he starts off. And that's how he's going to end up at, at the end in chapter 16 in the great doxology. He says, man, to God be the glory. He has this awesome salvation, which was hidden for ages, but that mystery has been revealed. It's been consistent with the Holy Scriptures. But to the only wise God be glory and honor. Can you see how he's not ashamed? That was the great doxology. And as I walked it through, um, I backed up and said, before he got to doxology in chapter 15, he saluted about 26 people. But then he gave a little bit of a warning because he said, there's some people you don't salute. There's a great big contrast between those who have their God being their appetite and those whose God is Christ. Which group do you identify with? But before it gets that, at the end of chapter 15, last verse, verse 33, you can hear the pastor's heart, the great pastoral longing. Please get along. I just translated it for you. You know, it, it should be right there. May the God of all peace be with you all. Not just 75% of you. All of you. Get along. Now, 
This is the pastoral plea that he finishes up a lot of his application uh, after he's given since chapter 12, 13, 14, and at the end of 15, he says, please, this is what I pray, is that God will keep, take care of me as I'm doing ministry and that people won't, won't jump me and all that when I go to Jerusalem and I do this particular mission trip. He says, pray that God's grace will be sufficient, but he says, for you all, may you have peace. Are you there? Are you there yet? When you look around at what's going on in our culture, sometimes the only way we think we can have peace is if we turn off the television and stop reading the papers. I'll tell you this, you might be indifferent, but peace is not going to stay. As my dad used to say, uh, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Uh, he would quote that on the radio quite a bit because this world is in turmoil. And in chapter 15, you, what, the reason why the, 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 the pastoral plea for peace was at the beginning of the chapter, verse five, 15, verse 5, there was some disharmony. Things weren't going the way they should be. I want to use this illustration. Since I don't know what I'm doing, this might work really well. Okay? Hey, that's one person. That's two. That's three. That sounds pretty nice together, doesn't it? That's a chord. Now, I don't think I had it in a major key, but anyway, that's a chord. Now, in the Bible there, it says, if you look at that text, may the God of endurance and encouragement, in other words, the God that puts up with you and the God that knows what you need, he can encourage you to do what's right. May the God of encouragement grant you to do what? To live in harmony. This is what it sounded like in Rome. Now, I think the illustration's made. Aren't you glad I stopped? May the God of all peace stop the, the dissonance. That's chapter 15. Now, we're in chapter 14. Now, the disharmony is revealed, and because in chapter 15, verse 1, he says, hey, guys, some of you have grown in the Lord a little more than some of the others. Some of you are babes in Christ. Some of you are a little bit uh, seasoned, let's say seniors in Christ. But he ends up using this term dunamis. Those of you that are, are empowered, uh, he says, you need to help those who are not powered or weak. And he says there's a burden or a responsibility. There's an opportunity for you to be able to, to work on this harmony because that's the way it should be. There should be peace among the people of God. Why? Because there's one Savior. It's in the doctrines of chapters 1 through 12. And I can explain that for you in a, in a moment. But right now, let's go back to chapter 14. So our text today is in verse 20. And he says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble in what he eats. Whew. He's been using all this Christianese language for a while. And then finally he says, but it's wrong. It's wrong. How many of you like to be told you're wrong? It's wrong for somebody to cause somebody else to stumble. Now, he does put the caveat on here in relation to food. We could focus simply on the food aspect on it, but the issue seems to be in the text that the reason the disharmony is there is because there's a lot of people that are struggling with opinions. How do I know this? Because if you go to chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, if you'll read it with me, as for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome that person, but not to quarrel over opinions. This is where you get the dissonance. 
This is where you get the frustration taking place and people can't stand it. It's like scratching a chalkboard. I can't take it anymore. Now, in verse 2, he says, one person actually believes he can eat anything, but the weak person only thinks that they can eat certain kinds of food. Verse 3, so he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, but let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Uh, it's really interesting that you've got two different factions going on. And isn't that the case in most arguments? I, I like the triperspectival approach, which gives you, instead of a linear, it gives you a triangular aspect. And, uh, and I'll show you that in days to come. But most people are stuck on, you're either with me or you're against me. And the way they measure success is whether you're coming my way or whether you've got your back turned and you're going the other way. It's kind of like you're on a line. You know, I, I was a math teacher for a little bit, and you can, on the, on the set of integers, if you're at zero, you're at neutral spot, but if you go to the, to the right side, you know, then you're going uh, one direction. If you're going to the left, you're going the other, and you can go bigger or smaller. But the point is, is that you can't, the only way to get to where you're both together is you got to come meet in the middle, or you got to meet someplace on that timeline, or on, on that, on that uh, math line, that linear way of thinking. Here you have... Quarrels over opinions. And when you bring up the topic of food, some people say, well, this is the way it's supposed to be, where somebody else is over here and says, this is the way it's supposed to be, and you have a conflict because you're not united at the same place on the line. I want to be able to tell you that the Apostle Paul tells us, hey, you guys got to see from the helicopter view here. It's not about the vegetables or not about the vegetables. It's about the people's hearts. It's about the children of God that are in your midst. Remember the pastoral plea at the end of chapter 15? He says, I want you to be at peace. At the beginning of chapter 15, verse 5, he says, I want you to be in harmony. Uh, the reason I repeat these things is because this is the way it should be. This is the way we would like it to be. This is the way it can be if we were all following Christ. Now, it's not that way. Not many people are all following Christ. I mean, how many, uh, the, I've heard the, uh, the awful phrase that Sunday morning is the most segregated uh, hour of the, of the week. You know, and sometimes they try to use that about the, the difference of skin color, that certain skin colors meet and then others meet, and it's like they separate. I, I actually don't look at it that way. I think that on Sunday, we, if you look at all the different denominations and if you look at all the different people who claim to be Christians, we can't even meet together. We tried to have a revival recently over here in, in Sussex County, and it was hard to be able to pull churches together just to be able to say, hey, this is a revival. And there's reasons. But if I go back to chapter 14, verse 1, they were quarreling a lot over opinions. And the text that we're looking at today in verse 20, do not destroy the work of God. It was within this mess that the Apostle Paul is telling us, don't destroy the work of God. Now, uh, I want to be able to walk you through the three points about understanding the work of God. First is going to be the concept about the work of God. Secondly, I'm going to deal with the concerns about the work of God that Paul brings up. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the completion of the work of God, which actually is in Paul's earlier chapters. You know, because we're in chapter 14, you're going to say, wow. The reason why Paul speaks with so much confidence is because he already knows the end before the beginning. Because he knows the mind of Christ. 
So walk with me, if you will. What is the work of God? Uh, there's a couple of texts in a lot of different places. Uh, in Job chapter 37, he says, Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the works of God. Now, if I give you the big, big picture of the works of God, and the catechism summarizes it for us, or the, uh, some of the theologians back in the 1600s wrestled through, what are the works of God? Well, there's two major works of God that nobody else could ever do. Do you know what they are? I could give you a quiz. Well, the first one is creation. And the second one starts with a P. Providence. So the works of God in the grandest, biggest scheme is creation and providence. And if I could help you to understand it, it's that in order for God to have such a great salvation, there had to be a world. And in order for there to be the world, he's the only one that could make it. So he said, let there be. Creation. Wow. Was anybody there to observe it? Were there any scientists taking notes? Was there any uh, CNN or Fox News reporters telling us what took place? No. The only way we know about this is that the God who made it told us about it in the book of Genesis. And it's really cool, cool how he explained it in the day uh, motif, how it was done. And then he explained that in the Ten Commandments, which he wrote with his finger, Exodus 20. In six days, he made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. And on the seventh day, he rested. Everything was done. Very good in six days. Wow. The work of creation. Now, the, the P word, providence, is a little easier for some people to handle than predestination. Okay, but the idea of providence is that God made this great world. Guess what? He didn't just wind it up like a clock and let it tick. He actually takes care of it. Okay, and that's what providence is all about. So God made everything, and then he takes care of it. He provides whatever is necessary. When you get these theological foundations, who else can say that that's their work? Did you help to create? Did you help to sustain? No. And this is one of the reasons why Job is like, nobody can even do this. Nebuchadnezzar, the great king who, had, who was the head of that statute, you know, he was supposed to be the greatest kingdom of Babylon. Even he, when he spoke, everything would happen. But he couldn't speak and make the world come to pass. And that's why it was pretty amazing. In Daniel chapter 4, he confesses that there is nobody like Yahweh. He does according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can even raise their fist at him and say, why? No way. The works of God are creation and providence. Now, once you understand that, then you have this, uh, this, this the passage goes on to say, uh, I want to highlight a couple things. If it's God's work or if, it's it's, if it is the work of God, then it is divine. It is literally godly. The work that we're talking about, only God could do. It is not by works that, that, that we're talking about, our earthly works. It is the things that only God has done. And that's why when we say God entered into this plan of salvation, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, before he ever made the heavens and the earth. In fact, the reason he made the heavens and the earth was so that there would be a place where the Lamb of God would come and be slain. Just think about that for a moment. Why else would he need this earth? He needed a globe that he could have somebody land on, one of the Godhead, that could actually demonstrate Good Friday. The greatest love being demonstrated by the greatest holiness at the, at the same time, simultaneous. Wow. It only happened because of the work of God. Now, I told you it is divine, but I also want to tell you that it is work. 
The, and and uh, this, this idea of a work, I heard you talk about it in Sunday school this morning, those of you that came. A work is different from an act. An act is something that's punctiliar, just like that. One time, it's done. A work is something that starts and keeps going. A work is something that hasn't been completed. And oftentimes in our English language, we talk about it with the, uh, with the, gerund, or with the ing ending, like uh, I am believing instead of I believe. I believe could be punctiliar or it could be uh, continual. Okay? But when you say I am believing, that means I'm believing now and I'm continuing to believe. And so when you look at this, the work of God is something that God starts and God is completing. Okay, and it's really fascinating when you understand it. And, I, and, and, and in the catechism, they explain it really well by saying justification is an act of God. Okay, adoption is an act of God. But sanctification is a work of God. Now, having made that distinction, let me explain it very quickly. So justification is a one-time deal where God says you're innocent. I confess, recently I was falsely accused of speeding in a, in a zone up in Maryland. And uh, so I ended up standing before the judge. And the judge was in a hurry, praise the Lord. <laughs> and when my time came before to stand before the judge, I said, I'm not guilty of doing that speed that the, the, they told me I was doing. I may have been going faster than I, when I, than that's posted line, but I wasn't going as fast as he said I was going. And I stood before the judge and said, not guilty of that charge. And it was so cool. I mean, she barely even took a breath. Not guilty, not guilty. That meant I was clear. Right from that moment, I didn't have to pay a fine, and I didn't get any points. I barely even know what to do. Justification is even better than that. When God the Father is able to say, not guilty to you. It happened at a moment in time. We might argue exactly when that took place. But it happened punctiliar. It was an act of God's free grace, whereby he pardons a sinner. Now, adoption is also in that same, same pattern. Okay? In order to become a child of God, what did you do? How many of you paid off the judge? How many of you all went through the parenting classes to be able to, to say, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a good kid so I can be just like the father? No, we don't do that. The picture of adoption is that while we were left outside, while we were strangers and foreigners, while we were condemned, that God did something that was pretty amazing. That he extended his love to us. And, and John 1.14 says that, that as many as received Christ, to them he, became, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. And so we are. Now, does God do that progressively? You get to be a child a little bit more tomorrow than you are today. Maybe in two weeks you might actually get a little bit more status of a child. Do you have to work your way to get your child status? No. My wife is adopted. She doesn't even remember the previous situation because once she was brought into the family, she's in the family. And that's punctiliar. And that's one of the reasons why, by the way, you don't lose your salvation because once you're brought into the family, you might be a bad kid, but you're part of God's family. And whom the Lord loves, what's he do? He corrects. 
So it's kind of interesting when you look at the dynamics of all this. I told you those are both acts, but a work is the work of, of sanctification. And the work of sanctification is also something that's done by grace. God started a work in you, and he is going to perfect it in the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's why if I read for you here, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live unto righteousness it's really kind of interesting in in justification the act that god did he declares us righteous and then in sanctification he works righteousness in and through us now having understood some of that then we understand that when paul in chapter 14 verse 20 of this text says do not destroy the work of god the work of sanctification that's going into your life that you are becoming, as let me quote this again, you're enabled more and more to die to sin and to live unto righteousness. Wow, that is pretty neat to be able to recognize the works of God. Now, I could spend a lot more time on it, but we're going to come to the Lord's table. So let's move to the concern. In our text, it actually says, do not destroy the work of God. Now, as a, as a reformed preacher, I almost wanted to pull my hair out, but after my haircut, I couldn't. Couldn't even grab one. Now, this is a hard text. Can you destroy the work of God? Let's look over here. Anybody in that first row, are you able to destroy the work of God? Nobody's nodding yes. How about you guys? Are you able to destroy the work of God? I see somebody that's admitting, no, no, no. Well, I, if I was in your shoes, I would say that too, because I don't want to destroy the work of God. Do any of you want to destroy the work of God? This is, a, this is a weird thing for him to say. The Apostle Paul, who talks so boldly about, uh, about all the things about salvation, and we'll tackle that in Romans 8 in a moment. But here he says, do not destroy the work of God. The concern is that something can mess with it. Something can alter or some have an effect on it. Now, I was looking at some of the, some of the understanding to ex explain it. It is to make or to cause to happen... Uh, to cause to change, to bring spiritual harm. It says to cause irreparable or tremendous spiritual damage to someone conceived as if it's physically destroying a person. Any of you want to just say, oh yeah, let's destroy the work of God in somebody's life. If you, if you ever thought of it like that, you'd have to be absolutely crazy to name the name of Christ and say, oh yeah, sign me up, I want to destroy somebody. Do you understand how Paul is really using this terminology, uh, 150 expressions of this idea of destroying. Now, I am not going to go through all 150 of them because there's, <laughs> there's a lot. Okay? But when you, when you start to understand the text, uh, there's any time something that was together is being brought apart, uh, you could say to release, to destroy, to untie, to send away, to divorce, to loose. Uh, there's several other uh, concepts to abolish, to relax. Uh, now, all those terms, some of them are a little more favorable than others. But they're from the root Greek word that actually says to, to, to loosen or to pull apart. When I was in my Greek class back in college, that was one of the first words we had to learn. Didn't realize that it was linked to the idea of loosening somebody's sanctification. Hear that text again. Do not, brothers, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for somebody to make another to stumble 
by what he eats. The idea of the stumbling there is the scandalon. It's like a, a road, a, 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 something that trips you up. And so he says, do not uh, destroy the work of God, the work of sanctification in somebody's life, which we'll find out in Romans chapter 7 is greatly explained. Uh, even Brother Morris was speaking about that in the prayer today. The things that we want to do and we don't do, we already struggle inside of our own souls. But in this particular text, he says, look, do you want to destroy somebody else? Do you want to destroy the work of sanctification that's going on in a brother or sister in Christ? So that concern is pretty significant. Uh, and so when I look at this text, I just want to give you the thoughts behind the whole thing before we make the completion. If, you, if you're following along, there are three so's in this text, S-O. Okay, if you're following, I think it's in verse 12, verse 16, and verse 19. So in verse 12, it says, so then... In verse 16, it has the same thing, so do not let, and then verse 19 ends up saying, so then let us do something more. What are these three things that are in this, in this context? He said, first, he says, so um, who are you accountable to? He asked this kind of question in the, in the way the text is written in verse 13, or in verse 12. He said, each of us are going to give an account to who? You can answer this. Okay, that's not a trick question. Okay, so if you're going to give an account to God, do you have to give an account to everybody else? No. And that's one of the things that the apostle is writing in the application here in chapter 14. Since there's, a, there's schism, there's a mess in the church because people are not united, they're in disharmony. He says, hey, all of you, all of you, rich and poor, uh, able and unable, weak and strong, all of you are going to stand before your master. All of you. Okay, that was the first one. Then he says, um, uh, you're going to give an account. So the stuff that comes out of your mouth, the stuff that's in your heart, all those things, you're going to end up meeting your maker. The second so comes down in verse uh, 16. And he says, so do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. And so this is what I ask the question is, so what is really good? He basically is saying it this way. Okay, you know that you're going to give an account for you. And your neighbor, the person that you think is doing things wrong, they're going to give an account to God too. So that was the first point. The second point he says, look, if you're doing what you're doing as unto the Lord, if you're praying and seeking the Lord's face and you're turning from your wicked ways and he's making your path clear and this is what you're supposed to do, then he says, don't give up on it. He says, let me read that text again for you. Do not let what you regard as good to be even evil spoken of. He says, don't let it be turned into blasphemy. If you're doing it as unto the Lord, if you're helping to set up chairs or if you're helping to direct traffic or if you're helping to, uh, uh, to, to cook food, whatever it is the task that you're doing, if you're doing it as unto the Lord, you, you don't need to have to go and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. He says, defend it. Why are you doing it in the first place? Hmm. Any of you so bold as to know the answer why you're doing it in the first place? Well, the text tells us. The reason you're doing what you're doing is because you think it's right. Look at the text again. It says in verse 16, Do not let what you regard as good to be twisted around. You've prayed about it. You've sought the Lord's guidance on it. Don't give up on it so quick. Hang on to it. And that's what he's trying to say here. He says, you're going to give an account before God, so don't be waffling between this and this. Don't just say, oh, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Oh, what am I going to do? No. 
If you look at the text a little earlier, he says, if you, right at the beginning, um, in verse 3, no, verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything while the other person thinks that they can only eat vegetables. In verse 5, they says the same thing. One person esteems a day or their calendar one way and another esteems it uh, another way. And he says in verse, uh, at the end of verse 5, each person is fully convinced in his own mind that what they're doing is right. And that's part of the reason we have a mess. We have the disharmony. Because people are absolutely convinced they're right. The one who eats, this is verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains honors the Lord. And and he says in verse 7, none of us will live to ourselves and none of us will die to ourselves because we're the Lord's. And so it's really interesting that when you understand this context, the first thing he said, you're all going to stand before the Lord. And secondly, don't, uh, don't give up on the positions that you hold as doing unto the Lord. But the third thing, which is where our text takes us today in verse 19, he says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace. Let me say that softly. Therefore, let us pursue peace. Wow. The interesting thing here is, is that this ought to be a no-brainer because who are we trying to pursue peace with? Is it with the people that are shooting guns at you? Is it the people that are trying to take away your your liberties as an American? Is it people that are taking away your money from the bank account? Now, who who are we supposed to have peace with here in verse 14, 20, or chapter 14, verse 20? With Christians. With believers. Have you ever thought about that? By the way, this is exactly what Romans chapter 12 says. As much as be possible, live in peace with all people, especially those who are in the household of faith. Uh, Do you see that it's being echoed here in chapter 14? Paul's already laid the foundation that because of all the doctrines in chapters 1 through 12, now he says, practice it. Practice it. And so in verse 19, he says it so well, pursue what makes for peace. And then the the term there in the the ESV says for mutual upbuilding. Uh, Basically, the upbuilding, the word building is the root word for house. Okay, and then the, the idea of the mutual it uses the word together. So it's together in the house. Now, let me just give you a little illustration. Uh, my mom <clears throat> took that passage in Genesis very well, be fruitful and multiply. She ended up having 12 kids that lived. No, she had eight kids that lived. Lots of pregnancies. Um, but anyway, there's eight of us in one house. Can you imagine what it was like at every meal? You should have seen it when Kentucky Fried Chicken came to the table. I don't think we practice let each esteem another better than themselves. Now, we all wanted to have finger licking good on the kind of meat that we liked. Praise the Lord, my sisters like dark meat. So there was a white meat piece for me. Now, if you think about how, how silly this can be, but when you're looking at the oikos, the house of God, we're supposed to dwell together in the house of God. We're supposed to be mutually upbuilding as they translate it. But we're one body. One body. And that's why he says in the next verse, do not destroy what God is doing, the work of God over the food, over the days of the week, over some of your petty practices. No, we need to be coming together. And that is why there, are, there is um, five uh, or six admonitions in this text, and I'll just 
bullet point for you. He says, number one, stop passing judgment on believers. Stop passing judgment on believers. Okay, you can see that clearly in, uh, in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So the first thing is, stop the pattern of casting judgment on other believers. Number two, decide not to hinder another believer. Decide that you're not going to be a stumbling block to somebody. Okay, now that decision is right there in the text. Because if you decide to be a stumbling block, you are not exercising love. You read it right there. So if you don't have love, what's the opposite of love? Uh-oh. We are known, we are Christians by our hate. It's not supposed to be that way. The Apostle Paul, in making the applications of the doctrines of grace, says, hey, you need to decide not to hinder another believer. Number three, do not destroy the elect one. This one was an interesting passage for me when I was looking there. Um, it's right there in the text in verse... Um, yeah, I think it's verse... Uh, 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Wow. Now that word destroy is not exactly the same text as the word destroy the work of God, but this one is destroying the one for whom Christ died. He's just putting it into a context that you're looking and saying, hey, that person that I feel hatred towards, did Jesus die for him? It really makes you look at them a little different. That's why I like the helicopter view. When you have the helicopter view of faith, then you're going to see God more clearly. You're going to see the difference between right and wrong, the beauty of holiness, the ugliness of sin. But the, the other part that I think most people miss, you see the value of every soul. The value of every soul. Why did Jesus come to this world? It's not because he wanted to. It's because of love. The love of Christ compels and it constrains and it drove all these things to take place. So when, when he says that there's an elect person, uh, you, you do not destroy that person. You don't make it your goal to make sure that they are taken down. You know, uh, we, we have gone through some trials in the years. I've had some different counselors. Morris and I were talking about some situations in the past where some people actually were the accusers of the brethren and they loved it. Can you imagine having a position? I'm going to be able to accuse that person of sin and that person of sin and that person of sin. Now, if you're the prosecutor, that sounds kind of fun. Makes me think of a little bit what was going on in Wisconsin this week. Most everybody probably got a glimpse of how the judge was watching the prosecutor make accusations. He was so fed up when the, when the prosecutor said that he, when the prosecutor was trying to hold the person guilty for his silence. It's like the judge says, time out here. He says, that's one of the fundamental rights that you have as an American, the right to, to, to not have to talk. Pretty interesting how you see all this kind of stuff, and we need to love one another. I, go further here. So don't destroy the elect one. And it also says in verse 16, do not cave in to what others think. Verse, uh, uh, verse 16 there. Uh, do not let what you regard to be as good evil spoken of. There is a command in this that you ought to hang on to the things that you really believe are true. Don't waffle. If you're going to be waffling, then the next thing you know, then you are going to be committing some sin because you're not going to be doing it as unto the Lord. You're going to be doing it to please men. You try to do it so that people will get off your back. 
Now, the, the last two, pursue what makes for the kingdom of God. That was the text here in verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace. In other words, pursue this, this building up instead of tearing down. So it's the positive instead of the negative. And then he says in verse, the last one, our text today, do not loose away the very work of God. Do not undermine, undercut, or untie. Do not divorce or separate. Do not cast division. And he said, this is what we ought to be doing. I told you there was a great concern for the work of God because this is what he brings up. And even though I believe that God is going to finish the work, well, that's our last point. The reason why I don't have to capitulate and be afraid of the concern of the work of God not being completed, it's really not about the work of God not being completed. It's about what's going on in your life. Because if you're going to be hating the brethren and you're going to be doing things to, to cause others to stumble, if you're going to be doing the things that are not upright, pure, lovely, and just, if you're not presenting your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, whose problem is that? It certainly is not the one that you're accusing of. It's your problem. It's between you and the Lord. So the, cons the completion of the work. Okay, because I wanted to quote in chapter 9, verse 18 and 19. Uh, Romans, it says, So then he has mercy on whom he wills. This is God. And he hardens whom he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? You see, God is the one that's going to hold people accountable. And the weird thing is, is that when we're thinking about holding other people accountable, then we're putting ourselves in the place of God. And that's why in Romans 9, he says, don't do that. God will hold people accountable. And that goes back to the same things that we already started, uh, that we said in, in, uh, that we are accountable to God, so therefore we ought to stick to what God has given us direction to do, and we ought to pursue the things that are peaceful and that build up. Uh, the, the completion of this work, let me just finish it this way, is that my dad's favorite verse says it very well. The Apostle Paul, in another book, has already dealt with this issue, Philippians 1.6. He that begins the work of God is going to finish the work of God. When does he say he's going to finish it? At the day of Jesus Christ. Do you know when that day is? There's still some debate over if that's coming or if it's already happened. The day that Jesus paid it on the cross? Or is this going to be the day when we get to be changed? 1 Corinthians 15. When, the, when we're going to be caught up together to be with the Lord and we're going to get a new body that's not going to have that sin nature. We're not going to have to struggle with any of these things anymore. We won't even need tear ducts because we won't even cry anymore. Oh, what bliss that will be. But in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, we know that the work is going to be finished. Now, what is the work that God has started in you? Remember, we talked about the work of sanctification. But in Romans chapter 8, he explained a little bit more of this. So if you turn back to it, you're going to see in Romans chapter 8, uh, I want to be able to read it for you, starting in verse 16. The Spirit is going to help us. Because this work of God is not something that we can do on our own. In fact, it's something we can't do on our own. We need help. We need help. I need help. You need to be able to say, I need help. And so in, in verse 16, it says, the spirit of himself is going to bear witness. He's going to help us. He's going to help the children of God. Now, if you're following along with me, that's because when we get, to, this is all chapter 8. He's already anticipating chapter 14. There's a mess. There's disharmony. So he says, look. If you get it right, you're going to know that the Spirit will help you to get through these things. If we're children, then we're heirs. If we're heirs, then we're joint heirs with Christ. In other words, in Christ, we've got all this stuff secured. Verse 18, for I considered the sufferings of this time are not that big of a deal. Why would he be suffering? Let me give you a hint. 
is because of those church people. He says, the things that I'm going through in this earth, it's not even worthy to be compared with what I'm going to get in heaven. God's already super abundantly given me more than what I could ask or think. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, neither has entered into the mind or the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Uh, and then he says in verse 19, creation. Remember God's works of creation and providence? Creation is waiting. Creation already knows that this is a broken world. This is a mess. There's disharmony all over the place. Why do you think we have tragedy after tragedy? It's not because of global warming. It's because of sin. And it's because of the curse that God gave to this world. He never said that this world is going to continue on and on and on and on. He said there's going to be a day of reckoning. If you look at verse 29, creation itself will be set free from its bondage uh, to corruption. And it will obtain a freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, it's going to be changed when we finally stop sinning. When we start to have that beautiful harmony, you know, with the three and the cord. If you go down to uh, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. It's, it's every time we run into a problem, every time we see something in this created world that's a mess, we're, we're saying, boy, we want something better. Now, John Lennon, in his song, he says, imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no boundaries, imagine there's no countries. You know, his, his dream of what heaven is, is not what God has revealed. Sadly, there's a lot of people in this world, and I pray none of you in this church, who have bought into that deception. He says that we're all groaning, waiting for the creator to come back and fix things. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, verse 23, who have been the first fruits of the spirit. We groan inwardly. We long for a better time when we don't have to struggle with even getting along with our brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 25, but we have this hope. But if we have this hope and we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We're still saying, well, we have to put up with it. There's people that will misunderstand. There's folks that are going to eat vegetables and those who are not. They're going to eat cheeseburgers from McDonald's. It's okay. Likewise, verse 26, the Spirit helps us. Remember, the Spirit already helped us before. Now he reminds us that God himself this is the work of God in us. The Spirit of God comes and helps us. We don't even know how we ought to pray. So the Spirit helps us to be able to talk to God about what we need to do in the situations that we face. How do we need to get along with, with our elderly parents? Or how do we need to get along with our, our aging children? How do we get along when the, when the bills don't have enough money to pay for them? How do we get along? All these kind of things. The Spirit helps us to know how to pray. Verse 27, and he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. And it's really beautiful to be able to say that you, there's nothing that God doesn't know about already. Take everything to him in prayer. We've been pushing the prayer vigil because we want you to be patterning prayer. We don't want you to quit praying just because it's Thanksgiving Sunday. By the way, come 9 o'clock on Sunday to give thanks. If you have anything to give thanks for, come at 9 o'clock. I'll just assume that if you don't come at 9 o'clock, you're not thankful. You know, we're supposed to be giving thanks as a country, and if God's people don't give thanks, who will? Just think about that for a moment. I'm not trying to guilt you into it, because that might be one of those things in chapter 14, verse 1, that we might quarrel about if you have to come to church at 9 o'clock. The Bible never says you have to show up at 9 o'clock. You're right. But it doesn't say you have to show up at 1030 either. But it does say, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Uh, this is where I wanted to get to the text. The Spirit is going to help us to do this work of God. And so he says in verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, 
the work is going to all come together. God is going to make this tapestry that on the one side of it looks like a mess of yarn, a mess of thread, a mess of all this different colored stuff. It looks like a traffic jam in the middle of New York City. It's awful. But if you flip the, the tapestry over, you have a beautiful, beautiful image. It's by design. Many of us never get to see the tapestry that God has weaved because we're living in a messed up, on the messed up side. We know that God has a perfect plan, even the bad things that you're facing. Some of you in this room have been in tears this week. Your situation, you can't fix it. There's people that you care about and you can't undo it. You know what I'm talking about. We know that God will still work that together for good to them who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he, and then he lists these six things. Notice this is the work of God. He foreknows people. In other words, before he said, let there be, he already purposed that there was going to be. I call that predestined. Uh, uh, he, he, he knew it in his mind. This is God's imagining, or his his creative ability to say this is the way it's going to be. Then he predetermined it next to be conformed to the image of a son. He basically says, hey, there are sinful people that are going to be sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, and they're going to need help. And he purposed that those people are going to have the work of God completed in them. You know what that means? It means that if God starts a work in you of salvation, he's going to finish it. He's going to take you home to glory. And there's nothing you can do to stop it. You can try. I wouldn't want to be you. And those whom he predestines, he also calls. Hey, you. Hey, you. Have you ever heard God call you? He does. The inner call. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're the children of God, but he also calls us to do what he has purposed. Tracy and I just went to see the sight and sound presentation of, uh, of Esther and her famous line, you know, which is, you got it? What is it? For such a time as this. Who knows, Mordecai says, this is why God called you here. For such a time as this. Okay, and then he says, if he calls you, then he justifies you. It's an act. It was already done. If you've already been justified, then you can't be unjustified. I just want you to know, you can't erase the declaration that you're innocent. You can try to prove that you're still guilty, but the truth is you're declared innocent. And in God's economy, you are declared innocent. And you are. Because he's the judge. He's the one that you're going to give an account to. Remember we did that in chapter 14? Everyone's going to give an account to God. Has he declared you righteous or not? And then the last one, if he justifies you, he also is going to glorify you. That means he's going to finish the work and take you to glory. And the sin nature will all be gone. And the work of sanctification will have been complete. Now we come to the Lord's table. Or I, I could finish with this thought uh, from Romans chapter 8, verse 34. So who, this is 8 before verse chapter 14, he says, so who is left to condemn? Did you notice this? Did you know that that was in the book before chapter 14? He raises the question, who can condemn one of my children? Who is left to stand there and say, you're condemned? And that's why the admonition for us is in our text. He says um, in chapter 14, verse 20, do not destroy the work of God. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. 
So that's why you operate in faith. The faith that you have from the Son of God in, in verse 22, keep that focus between you and God. And blessed is that person who doesn't have to doubt anymore. And that's why I come to the Lord's table and I said, who is going to judge you? The answer is God, the Savior. Jesus is going to be in that place. And when the, when the wrath comes down of, of God upon sin, it comes down upon us. So who, is going, who are you going to stand before? You're going to stand before God with Christ as your advocate. And he will receive you on his terms. Brothers and sisters, this is an interesting sermon to preach before communion. I'm not asking you to confess all of your faults. Now, the text in Romans is saying, determine not to keep doing it. Put it behind and reach forth unto those things that are before. If you've been crucified with Christ, and we talk about the cross, now we live. We live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, I'm going to tell you that this is not a postmodern message that says, oh, it doesn't matter what anybody does. Oh, yes, it does. You know, Tracy and I were blessed with four kids. We never said, oh, isn't it great that you're sinning to any of our kids? You know, nor would we ever do that to the people in the body of Christ. It's never great to go on the path that leads to destruction of leaning on your own understanding, of doing what's right in your own eyes. If somebody loves you, they're going to correct you. But the difference between correction and condemnation is L-O-V-E. Don't be afraid when the church leaders can come and love on you. And if you're struggling with something, come and get guidance and counsel. Because this is the way the body of Christ should work. That you should not put a stumbling block in the way of somebody that God is working on. Lord Jesus, I thank you that this table is for forgiven sinners. None of us are able to stand here and say, oh yeah, we haven't held grudges. We haven't, um, we haven't judged people. Oh, some of us might be able to say we perfected hiding it very well. But Lord, the scripture is telling us that there's, we're going to stand before you and that there's not going to be an idle word or a thought that has passed through our minds that you're not aware of. So, Lord, I pray that you'll give us a delight as I talk about that helicopter view of faith to see you, to not see you as the judge that's going to condemn us, but seeing you as the Father who welcomes us home because we love what is beautiful, lovely, just, and pure, and of good report, and we despise the works of this flesh, which is drunkenness and reviling and, and uh, gossip and, uh, and, and all those other kind of things in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18 and following. Lord, I do thank you that as we come to the Lord's table today, we don't have to pay any extra money. I'm grateful that we don't have to do a song and a dance to be able to get our token to be able to come. Lord, we come because you have provided us the way. Our Savior has died on the cross once for sin, the just for the unjust, that we might have this access Lord, even from Calvary's cross, that veil was, was rent in two when Jesus died. And we have access, and so we come. We come boldly. We come just as we are. But we come knowing that we're loved and praying that the love of Christ will flow through us. Bless this communion. I do pray that as it's being served, as it's being distributed, that we will be nourished in Jesus' name. Amen. If the elders could come forward at this time.
On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus uh, gathered the disciples in the upper room. Now, when he gathered them up there, it was on the Passover. You guys could come to the sides. Uh, he gathered them on that Passover, and, and it was different. This time, they didn't have a meal. They didn't have the bitter herbs. They didn't have all the stuff that you would have expected in the traditional uh, keeping of the Passover. This time, there was bread, and there was the fruit of the vine. Jesus calmed them down, and he said, I want to teach you about the Passover. Judgment doesn't come where judgment has already been. The wrath of God that's poured out against all unrighteousness will pass over you, but it will come on me. And when he held up the bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. He was about to be the one that would take it. The wrath of God poured out on him. And the, blood, the cup that he had to drink was the cup of God's wrath, the cup of pain. And Jesus knew how it would be to be alienated from the Father's love. But this was predetermined before he said, let there be, that he would be the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. As we come to the Lord's table today, my prayer is that you're not distracted by everything else. Don't be destroyed, but the work of God in your life, but rather have it being mutually built up. We're here because we're going to look to the cross. We're going to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of the faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured all of that so that we might be free. The cup that is before us, it is for believers. The bread before us, it is for believers. And in fencing the table, there might be some young people here, there might be some people here that are not so young who don't know Christ, who have never made a profession of faith. I want to encourage you, do not partake if you don't know Christ. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the apostle Paul warned the folks and said, don't eat and drink unworthily because some people have just treated it like lunch. They've even drunk, they've even... Uh, treated the, the fruit of the vine as if it was from a bar and they got drunk. And he said, that's bad. Some people are weak and sickly. Some have even died. It is a serious business. We're coming to the Lord's table. Yes, it's serious, but the cup that we drink is not a cup of wrath. It is a cup of blessing. I want to encourage you that when you partake of the bread, it, it is demonstrating your personal relationship with God. And when you partake of the cup, we'll hold it so we might demonstrate that we are one body in Christ. And when you wait for us to partake together, just remember all the people that you're not supposed to condemn or be a stumbling block to. This cup and this bread is for sinners who have experienced the work of God, of justification. If you have been justified by his grace, then please partake. If you haven't, I would love for you to hold back and meet with us after church today so that you can understand this better. Let me pray and set these apart. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sweet communion. We thank you that you took this, this practice that was so uh, edifying to the people of God throughout the Old Testament era. Each year they remembered the Passover, how that you took them out of bondage and you brought them through the Red Sea and you gave them the scriptures at, the, at Mount Sinai. Lord, it was a picture of your great salvation, how you can take us from our bondage to sin. You can take us through the blood of Christ and you can give us the word of God and you can promise us a promised land. Oh Lord, I thank you that in this sweet communion, we do not have to eat bitter herbs anymore. We do not have to be ready to go because we're trying to flee the Egyptians or e flee the evil. Lord, the only time we're supposed to be ready to go is that you're going to take us when you come for us. But we won't be left behind. 
I do pray your blessing on this bread and the juice. We pray that your will will be done in Jesus' name. Amen. As the, cup, uh, the bread comes around, please partake between you and the Lord. In the darkness we were waiting Without hope, without light To the heavens you came running There was mercy in your eyes To fulfill the law and prophets To a virgin came the word From a throne of endless glory To a cradle in the dirt to reveal the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost to redeem the whole creation you did not despise the cross or even in your suffering you saw to the other side knowing this was our salvation Jesus for our sake you died Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. breath till the stone was moved for good for the lamb and conquered death and the dead was from their tombs and the angels stood in awe for the souls of all who'd come to the father were restored praise the father praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. On that same night, he took the cup, and when he blessed it, he gave it to his disciples. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. It was a sweet cup. As the cup is being passed around, please hold it so we can demonstrate our unity in the body of Christ. was born, then the spirit lit the flame, now the gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint, by his blood and in his name, 
in his freedom I am free for the love of Jesus Christ who has resurrected me beautiful song to be getting us to think about things. I wanted to make sure I did not have a dour face as I encourage you to drink of this cup. It shouldn't be pain for you to have to drink this cup of communion with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a cup of blessing that we all get to drink. And so as we have this, I want to encourage you to realize that we are no longer under condemnation. Romans chapter 5 and chapter 8, there is no more condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Because if he, our master, doesn't condemn us, then who else can? This is a cup of reminding us of his great love towards us. Let us drink of it.
Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, the three in one. Lord, we thank you that you have provided for us a righteousness that is apart from law-keeping. You have given us a communion with the Holy Father, not because we are holy, but because you are working in us. The work of God is amazing. Lord, I thank you that you are going to complete the work that you started, and I do thank you that you are nourishing us for the rest of this journey until that time when we get to go home. Uh, and some of us some of us have loved ones that have already gone before, but Lord, we are looking forward to the fulfillment of Jesus' words in John, 6, John 14. Let not our hearts be troubled, because we believe in you, we believe in God, and we believe that you've gone to prepare a place for us, and you will receive us to yourself, that this sweet communion that we're tasting of now will be something that we thoroughly live in for eternity. We thank you for this taste of communion in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand to your feet.